Josh Campbell is the CEO of Clarem Media, where he oversees the overall strategic direction of the organization, as well as works closely with the management teams of the individual portfolio companies to build scalable products and services. Prior to Clarem, Josh served as CEO of Techonomy Media, which was sold to Clarem Holdings in 2018. At Techonomy, Josh spent eight years driving sustainable business growth through strategic partnerships and new product development. He built Techonomy to be one of the leading media companies covering technology and its impact on business and society. Techonomy Climate 2023 takes place on March 28th. The conference surveys the booming climate tech sector and highlights companies making the most significant impact. Josh Campbell, welcome to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Thanks for having me. So Worth is a media platform, an award-winning magazine distributed four times a year as a resource on entrepreneurship, finance, and lifestyle. You have the upcoming Economy Conference. Just tell us what the message behind Worth is. Yeah, so Worth was started about 35 years ago by Fidelity, really as a financial and wealth management publication. We acquired it about four years ago and really looked at the market of what do successful and influential people, executives, you know, what is the intent they're looking for? And we came up with this idea of what we call worth beyond wealth. So we less now focus on this idea of wealth accumulation, rather, how can people who have gained success and influence use their platform to make a positive impact on the world? Now with this upcoming economy conference, you really ask some of those important questions about how are those companies tracking and mitigating their carbon footprint? What role can biology play in fighting climate change? Tell us a little bit about the forthcoming conference and what you hope to achieve with that. Yeah, so this is the second year we're doing a techonomy climate conference. It'll take place in Mountain View, California. So really right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And the idea is that we saw that obviously climate and sustainability at the top of many leaders' to-do lists on figuring out how do they mitigate climate change. The tech industry really has a unique opportunity to help solve this, both as companies themselves, some of the largest companies in the world, as well as developing solutions in which leaders can embrace data to solve for their own consumption and carbon emissions issues. So what we hope to do is bring together a group of sustainability experts, business executives, entrepreneurs, investors, to really talk about all the ways in which we could address the climate crisis. So Josh, I want to start by saying that I founded a corporation 40 years ago, and I never went to business school. And yet for about 25 of those 30 years, I read work and it was a surrogate MBA. It's teaching me who the great investment houses are, teaching who the great leaders are. So I wanted to ask you first about how did you come up with the brilliant phrase, worth beyond wealth? And if you can decouple it from the normal notion of wealth optimization in your new focus frame, based on what you're doing for four years now, you're sort of helping people who are successful think about society. So I think it was in the magazine all along that successful people acquire wealth, but then they learn how to save and then they learn how to give. It seems as if you're defining people as business leaders in a world of society and social need. Is that what you mean by worth beyond wealth? Yeah, I think the notion of worth beyond wealth really is this idea and this move towards conscious and stakeholder capitalism. Uh, the doing well and doing good, that the two are not trade-offs. I wear this pin here. It represents the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I think what was interesting for me is when I first learned about the SDGs, Yes, part of it was about solving some of the biggest problems in the world, quality education, gender equality. 
But also in the same conversation, people would say it's a $1.5 trillion business opportunity to solve these major issues. So we're not saying in this idea of worth beyond wealth that you have to become a philanthropist or give up the notion that you want to be wealthy and make money. This idea of conscious capitalism, it's still capitalism, right? We still want to make money. We want to create business value, but there's a way we could do it responsibly. And I think, especially when you talk about next generations, the next generations care more and more about this, right? Millennial, Gen Z are looking for mission and purpose, no matter if it's a company they're going to work for, if it's a company they're going to purchase from. On the other hand, they're not saying we want to make less, right? They're saying, hey, we still want to make the same amount of money, but we want to do it in a way that we're working for companies that we think are really serving society. So I think that's the worth beyond wealth mantra really embraces that. We're not giving up that everyone wants to be successful financially. We're just saying is, there's ways we can now invest also our time into sort of making the world a better place. Excellent. It seems to me that represents a new type of leader, a new type of thought magnifier that is articulating something that has shifted in modern capitalism from the type of Milton Friedman self-aggrandizing capitalism of maximizing profit for self-wealth into a kind of social response capitalism. So I'd like to pursue it a little further. What's most interesting, Josh, is how you discovered this in yourself. I mean, a lot of the listeners are trying to find their own careers or are beginning to launch the business aspects of their own careers. How did you discover this interest in both business and society in yourself? Was it your parents? Was it your upbringing? Was it your first jobs? I think it's very interesting to learn how you develop that dual sensitivity. Yeah, it probably was a combination of all of those factors you mentioned, upbringing, experience, less so schooling. I think now social entrepreneurship is built into more educational programs than it was when I did my MBA. But I look back at various experiences. I had the unique opportunity to work in Moscow, Russia between 1997 and 2001 during this emerging middle class. And how does you know, business support this upcoming sort of new socioeconomic class in Russia? Also, I had the opportunity to work with companies in the payment space that really were looking at the un unbanked and underbanked as how do we bring people into the economy? Now, again, in many of the cases, these were commercial entities that were looking to monetize these movements. But again, that's why we could do well and do good, right? By bringing people into the modern economy, that's a great thing for everyone. And hey, by the way, if we're going to, you know, sort of maximize revenue based on that model, that works as well. But I do think that the UNSDGs really catalyzed it for me when I saw the UN outlined in goals and someone mentioned that first data point. I would argue that $1.5 trillion business opportunity data point is probably much larger now. They realized that probably just solving the climate crisis is over a trillion dollar business opportunity from carbon capture and carbon remediation to more sustainable supply chain. So, you know, I didn't come at it through the more traditional social entrepreneurship lens, which I think a lot of newer generations do come. I'm Gen X. I think we were focused more on building wealth. But again, now I'm lucky enough to have a platform in Worth 
to be able to, yes, celebrate success, but on the other hand, now really explore how we could leverage that for, for social good. I think it's fascinating. You mentioned the Moscow four years and then also the payment lessons for the underserved, because those to the listener explains that I think the perennial advice in that is that you're encouraging the students of the next generation to actually get their fingernails dirty in international travel in unexpected places from Moscow to Argentina to Africa. Was your MBA originally in finance and then you got involved in payment issues? If you could just help us understand that. By education, I'm a marketer. So I did my MBA in marketing, you know, spent time early in my career after business school in marketing, in technology companies, and then found an opportunity really in the payment space to launch a company. So the exit of the payments company, we sold to MasterCard. MasterCard uniquely with their foundation has really been historically focused on the unbanked and underbanked. At the time, Ajay Banga was the CEO of MasterCard. He just got nominated by Biden to lead the World Bank. Ajay is an amazing person who really understands how to balance for the commercial endeavors of a MasterCard, but also via the foundation and other mechanisms to serve broader community. After that, I did start Techonomy, which Techonomy in itself was a brand that really looked specifically at how technology and innovation are driving economic and social progress. So prior to Worth, I had really spent 10 years looking at all topics from cloud, social, big data, connectivity, artificial intelligence. How could all of these emerging technology trends really serve social and economic progress? We then sold Techonomy about five years ago to the holding company that I'm now part of. We then subsequently acquired Worth Magazine. And, and then again, I took the thinking that we had developed with Techonomy around tech and innovation and thought that worth really could be that finance and business lens of social and economic progress. If you look at any of these major challenges facing society, I think having both conversations, the how is tech and innovation addressing it, but without investment and business getting behind it, we'll never solve those issues either. So I'm lucky enough now to have, you know, sort of both the worth platform and the techonomy platform looking at most of these societal challenges through those various lenses. And your answer is perfect because it explains to the listener how you went from A to Z before you became the voice of the CEO. There were many steps before that, from the training to the tech companies to understanding the underserved to now this great platform that is part of what you do. When I read your magazine, in some ways, you're doing what Ben Franklin did 300 years ago in Poor Richard's Almanac, where you're telling narrative stories about people who are civil, who are effective, but also competitive in a contributing way. In other words, you're telling people how they can succeed like you've succeeded. Would you think that is an accurate way of describing the platform? Yeah, and I think to your point, right, we have to set these examples for future generations of showing that path. So Behind me here is a cover from our last issue called The Worthy 100. And The Worthy 100 really celebrates the executives, the entrepreneurs, the individuals who are using their platform for good. So everyone from Jane Fraser, the CEO of City, to Jose Andreas, the chef who now has you know World Kitchen, you see him on the front lines in the Ukraine. So our idea of The Worthy 100 was really to put a list out there of showing that this idea of, again, doing well and doing good is possible. 
And it's possible no matter if you're a senior executive, if you're a chef, if you're a musician who's just gained huge notoriety and want to use that platform. So again, you know, yes, we hope to be that platform that really educates these new generations by highlighting all the great work of, of the next generation leaders. Can you give us a sense in the subscription? Is it mostly American-based business people? So, so currently in print, we're in 100,000 households, typically U.S.-based. Our online audience, obviously, as you can imagine, is much more international in nature. We do host events all over the world. I was in Davos for World Economic Forum in January. This is my 11th year there hosting events. So we were there hosting for an international audience. I actually hosted two different conversations, leadership and corporate values, as well as one on the economics of sustainability. So, you know, again, the idea that, yes, we all talk now about climate and sustainability, but leaders are being held accountable to okay, what are the short-term, mid-term, and long-term gains of value that we're creating, not just purely, it can't just be a cost center. You know, yes, print, US-based, digital, obviously globally, as well as events. And speaking of the ways that technology is driving that transformation, it's quite hard to you know move forward these large countries like America, but we're seeing a lot of movements with the covenant of mayors and cities you know shining a light. I know that the Takami conference is being held in the Silicon Valley region. So as we face this decade of transformation and we see cities as being one of the main drivers of innovation and creativity, what do you see going forward? You know, really transform our energy, waste management, water scarcity city and the transformation of our transportation systems and resource management. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at the tech side, it starts with data, with measurement and with accountability, right? So even if we look at Europe, obviously the reporting mechanisms by which companies are held to reporting their scope one, scope two, scope three, carbon emissions, that's finally now making its way to the US. The SEC has made the recommendation, hasn't implemented it yet, but you know, it sounds easy, but now when we start to think about all of these companies that have manufacturing and supply chain and shipping, and how do they actually take all this data? So I think, you know, technology will help us and help leaders get, collect the data, analyze the data and provide actionable insights into what they could do. But on the other hand, no matter if we want to say a pending or if we're in a recession, inflation, some of these decisions are hard to make even as consumers, right? We've talked about this idea of a green premium. Are we now paying more for items that are more sustainable? And in a world where, you know, things are more costly, can we afford to do so? So I think if we start to shift the narrative on doing the right thing shouldn't cost more money, we need to create the economics whereby, you know, consumers are not impacted. It's not a choice of, do I want to do the right thing and pay more money? You know, we see companies like Patagonia that have embedded into their core business model, you know, really this idea that they can be more sustainable and do better. So it's hard to say how will, you know, make, you know, consumers change their behavior. You know, we see food waste and all of that. We're trying to incentivize consumers, but what will it take to truly change consumer behavior? That's a hard one. You do have companies like, like MasterCard. I just had interviewed their chief sustainability officer and they're doing two unique things. One is internally with every employee as a part of their variable compensation 
is compensated based on the company's progress towards their ESG goals. So one internally in their company is aligned to wanting to achieve their ESG goals, which also requires the company to do a better job at reporting and data. On the other side, MasterCard's working on platforms around conscious consumption, which means as when I get my credit card statement, should I understand what was the impact on the environment by what I made purchases with? I just went to book a flight with United the other day, and it actually shows me what the carbon consequence is of each flight. And that's based on a variety of factors, not just the plane itself, but is it at capacity, right? So the weight. So I think we're trying to use technology to help consumers make better decisions, as well as helping leaders really navigate some of the challenges that Wall Street and investors are putting on them. As a way of extending many of the things you just said in the first half hour, like teaching people how to embrace data, or you've talked about the technology side of the need and the challenge on climate change. And I would like people to understand that the magazine is so well-written in terms of understandability, in terms of discernment, so that issues that young people or mid-career people might think are hard to understand, like embracing data or technology innovation, in the hands of Worth magazine writers and editors, it's understandable. It's presented in a coherent E.B. White type of style, where because it's people-based, you can identify the solution paths. So it's not abstract. It's not like a theoretical journal of policy. Instead, it's a magnification of changes being made. Is that also part of your editorial team? How do you make sure that it remains people-based and also solution-oriented? Yeah, even at Techonomy, you know, tech was in our name when we started the company. We understood that not everyone's a technologist, right? So not everyone could sort of code in Python or could really dig into, you know, some of the more abstract topics, even like AI and machine learning. So we do need to humanize every topic. You know, we just did an article on NFTs recently because our audience, to your point, our business people, our investors, you know, investors, both institutional as well as retail investors, our entrepreneurs, we need to make sure we do a good job of giving them the scaffolding and giving them the background of some of these technologies. So we don't just bring it to such a level where it's only relevant to a, a very small subset of our readership. And as a person who's written in the space of business and society for a couple of decades, what I'm interested in is when I find someone who have this ability to articulate things in an understandable way about social need plus business, you use words like embrace and celebrate and beyond simple wealth. Even the phrase conscious and stakeholder capitalism takes it and points in a direction further than just conventional rule-based stakeholder capitalism. So my question at this point would be, how do you guys think of the next event? How do you have discovery sessions and how do you decide the content of the next magazine? We think about who is our existing audience, who is our aspirational audience. And then from there, we obviously have to now think about the topics that are most top of mind and relevant to them. We look at the geographic locations. We look at all the research. We do focus groups of talking to our audience to understand where can we help them navigate. And we then, you know, from there, put out basic editorial calendar of topics. So our Q1 issue that comes out this week 
is all about health and well-being and longevity, right? So everyone who has been successful is obviously now thinking about their physical and mental health, is thinking about this idea of lifespan, health span, right? So it's moved beyond lifespan of just the number because we know we're all living longer, but how do we live a healthy life? So that's our Q1 issue. Our Q2 issue to me is, you know, conversation about cities is focused on cities and travel. I think as we know, again, the pandemic radically changed both how we think about where we live, you know, from a city perspective, how cities are rethinking their footprint, economic development, as well as tourism and travel. Our Q3 issue is focused on philanthropy and impact investing. So again, really listening to our community. And then finally, the Q4 issue, which will now be our annual issue, is our Worthy 100 issue, which really then takes year long all of the leaders and the people that we've been talking about and all the good that they're doing and kind of, you know, culminates with a list and an event at the end of the year. And so, yeah, we focus on you know, cities too as well. It's really important. One thing we're facing now a lot is there's this fracturing of trust. So we have these good intentions. We want to move forward, but it's so hard to you know move forward and find that one common voice. And fracturing of trust we see now in not just our institutions and the media and government, of course. And so how do you feel we can break this cycle of distrust so that we can really more efficiently work in unison? It's just a counterproductive. I think that's the, that's the billion dollar question, right? And I don't know if there's an easy answer to it. You know, Richard Edelman and Edelman does the, their trust barometer release at the beginning of every year. They release it in Davos. And it really looks at a lot of those constituents you just mentioned from government to the private sector and even digs deeper within the private sector into industries. I think we're in a time where transparency is key. There's going to be missteps, right? People are going to maybe make decisions that aren't favorable, but I think, you know, people need to own it. Companies and organizations need to own it, understand their mistakes and move forward. So I think breaking down the barriers it's really going to come to aligning interests, right? And speaking a common language or vernacular on what is the interest of government? What is the interest of the private sector? What is the interest of sort of the financial community? And the only way we're going to get those groups to work together and come together in a room is, again, if you show them that, is it a rising tide floats all boats, right? That, that by working together, it's beneficial to all of the groups that they shouldn't be at odds. Again, we have to change this conversation from trade-offs to, you know, we could successfully move the needle no matter if it's on growing the economy or on solving some of these issues. So, you know, again, I think we've had Larry Fink in 2018 wrote his famous CEO letter about focusing on stakeholders over shareholders. Sometimes that's, you know, easier said than done, right? If a CEO is held accountable to their quarterly earnings. You know, the system is broken, right? How can you say we should do better for the world, but we understand that sometimes decisions that they need to make may not always result in greater shareholder earnings over, you know, doing what's right for their local communities or their employees. So I think, again, back to this idea of speaking a common language, really aligning interests is what it's going to take for those partnerships to happen you look at cities, you know, in the U.S., there are some successful examples, no matter if it's Detroit, Dan Gilbert, you know, who is the CEO of Quicken Loans, and what he was able to do by relocating the company into the center of Detroit, working with the city to really revitalize it. What Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, was doing 
you know, with Las Vegas. So it does take, in many cases, that public-private partnership. Yeah, I'd like to suggest, even in the outline for the next year of his magazine, the health and wellness, the conversation about cities and climate, the philanthropy piece on impact investing, and then also the 100 worthy people. You asked the right question, Mia, which is the fracturing of trust. I think what Josh is, even in his next year of content, about taking action in a coherent way. And you see it breaking through the barriers of mistrust because it's action-based, but it's also coherent. You're bringing in the different pieces. So I wanted to tell a little bit of a story. So Michael Bloomberg has me on the task force of climate-related disclosures. And he asked me to go to his philanthropy center in London because he knows I'm helping reinvent BP as a cleaner energy company. And so while I'm out there, he says, you have to meet some of my investors, Bruce. And you also have to meet our new mayor, Mayor Khan. He has just been elected the CEO of C40, the 40 largest cities of the world, like London, that are working on climate change. And Bloomberg's Philanthropies is paying for some of this work. So I go out and I spend a day with Mayor Khan just to give you a sense of what it feels like. The man is brilliantly funny. He's not just a serious wonk. If there's anything that I could say my mayor... Bloomberg, who I've always admired and worked for, he is kind of a little more personless. So Khan looks out at all these investors. He looks straight at me and he goes, I'm really glad that no one is here prepared to slap me in the face. And that's because the day before in Hollywood, Will Smith had slapped one of the guys. He goes, good, we're all a party here. We can start doing some work. And you could see in this young man, who a Pakistani elected the first non-white mayor of London's history, has the potential of leading these 40 cities. So I'm telling this story because hopefully you can get Mayor Khan and C40 involved in your Q2 issue because they are deeply involved with climate change. So for example, Bloomberg Philanthropies gives the monitoring equipment throughout London to see what electrification of the buses and the cars are actually doing. Bloomberg Philanthropies is looking at all 40 cities as a way of tackling the problem. So I'm just telling that story in the hope that somehow you can get Mayor Khan either looked at as, you know, I'm, I don't work for him, right? I'm just saying, yeah. I was impressed with his personality and his drive to help change the cities. And it's true. I mean, with Bloomberg, you know, I'm sitting here in Manhattan and New York. It is great in what he's supporting people like Kevin Sheiky and people around him that, you know, really are supporting a lot of these key initiatives. So that's great to hear. Yeah, and I think that Mayor Khan is the kind of guy that's so involved in local politics that it's also good to see him now thinking about Bombay and thinking about Australia. It's going to be, a, I think, a big development um, worth the cover. And I think a lot of cities have been, or countries, have been disproportionately affected by a few other countries, right, including the U.S. and China. You know, so how do some of these cities and countries who are the ones that are taking on the brunt of climate change but necessarily aren't you know, responsible for it, right? So I think there's a lot of interesting topics globally and conversations that need to be had. And I also think there's a trend, you mentioned the UN, there's a trend that by the year 2040, which is you know some of the stuff we work on regarding climate reduction, three quarters of the people will live within 50 kilometers of a megacity. So I think if you begin to look at the efficiency of that infrastructure and the density of population, that's a big thing for you guys to continue covering on. 
Well, yeah, we're concerned about a lot of those things. And of course, the health and well-being, which is also linked to the climate anxiety that a lot of us, particularly young people, because they have a larger stretch of future to think about, are experiencing. On the note of the 15-minute city, which I'm based here in Paris, where we have the 15-minute city, where we can see that cities, I mean, this idea of the city as being a living lab of what, I guess, countries can adopt, where we model our transport around walkable cities. That, that something that's really important for us. But I guess because we are an educational initiative, you know, there's an understanding that our present educational models based on meritocracy and knowledge acquisition are right now they're insufficient for countering, as you say, today's challenges or adaptive to intelligence, you know, great at teaching people how to pass tests and get a diploma. But are we equipping the next generation to adapt to the massive change that is taking place and needs to take place. Yeah, I mean, I think the amazing thing that ChatGPT has done is it's made AI a dinner table conversation. And if you've played it all with ChatGPT, you would realize very quickly that the skills that future generations will require to leverage you know, augmented technologies will be very, so, you know, everything from, I gave ChatGPT the opportunity to write a legal contract, to writing a press release, to writing a, a story for our magazine. So how we prepare future generations to embrace technology, you know, what are those soft skills? What are the things that are required for them to succeed? And does that come in the form of a four-year education or not? How many jobs truly don't require, from a skill set perspective, what a bachelor's prepares you for? But because, you know, hiring managers and HR like to check the box, and usually one of those boxes is four-year undergraduate degree, until the demand side changes. You know, obviously students and future generations will still require a undergraduate degree, but long way of saying is I think the adaptation of how the skills that will be required to leverage some of these amazing technologies is what we should be embracing, you know, embracing and sort of teaching future generations. I have a 15 year old and pretty much in high school, they told her, Hey, you cannot use, you know, generative AI. You cannot use ChatGPT to write your papers. Well, no. I said, well, I agree with that. We don't want them just kind of throwing it in there. But if they don't understand why the tool exists, how to leverage the tool, that the tool is not there just for them to then take the output and submit it as a paper, rather potentially something as a starting point for them to really then augment with their own intelligence, with their editing. So, you know, there's been all the parallels been drawn to the industrial revolution and the steam engine and what engine did for plows in the fields and how farming changed the printing press. So yes, technology is accelerating much faster than maybe it did generations ago, but these are not new challenges that, that we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I much prefer instead of artificial intelligence, assistive intelligence, meaning that it just helps us get the most out of what we can for ourselves and not just the novelty sake of it. But it does tell you those AI systems are getting quite good. It, it used to just be puting. I think that that's the real strength. 
But I mean, I've tried that, you know, get it to write a poem for you. And I said, write a poem about an eagle and just basically spat back Tennyson's The Eagle. <laughs> so it's more like a mirror. But it is interesting the level to which we can be fooled with the technology. And the other thing is, you know, there's so many, there's such a thirst now and you encounter it for people want to become entrepreneurs, they want to invent things. And we have to, then there's a real philosophical question, whether it's moral or good just because you can create something what are the moral implications of these technologies that we're putting out there whether the planet can sustain all these new inventions as our earth overshoot day last year was at july 28th which means we're just we're using more resources than the planet can sustain every year by july 28th that we've used our that year's resources so we're really digging into the future's resources now then so the moral question becomes, and as you must reflect on this with taconomy, is whether it is what just because you can invent something and you can produce it, whether it's ethical to do so, can the planet and people sustain it? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've been covering a taconomy, ethical and responsible AI, you know, for years, right? So I think in your question, there's two aspects of that, right? These there's the you know responsibility of just the creation of just goods and services that maybe we don't need and that they do come with a cost a cost to you know even computing right people you have to really think about well cloud computing it's still energy intensive and processing you think about crypto mining or just even ai and machine learning require such large data sets that takes up energy so you know, do we create and what does that mean? On the other side is once we do create things, you know, how do we use them for good? And we've all seen, no matter if it's war games or, you know, the horror stories of AI and taking over the world and sort of the negative side of AI. But again, I think that as long as we learn how to harness some of these technologies really to Hopefully, we all talk about freeing up humans to do what we're good at, you know, and that's the interesting part. So to your point about that, A, we could define it in a lot of different ways, but is it augmenting? Is it artificial? But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's assisting. I like that word. But, you know, we have to figure out how we coexist with technology, not to the point where we're going to automate away jobs and automate away everything. Even in that case, maybe we get to go to a four-day work week. Maybe we are able to work a little less. Maybe, you know, we don't need the amount of revenue and earnings that we've made historically if we're able to automate more. So I think, look, society luckily has figured out a lot of this over its time. You know, as I said, technology and Moore's law, you know, continues to accelerate processing the pace of technology. But, you know, from all other intense purposes, I think humans are trying to navigate this delicate balance. To kind of sum up, I think that if you look at the new series of worth books that they produce, if you look at their events around the world, especially in places like Davos and now across the next year, I would sum up that you're creating a community interested in having a well-spent life, a worthy life, not just a life of riches. And that brings me back to some classical notions that I remember in the 20th year of my corporation, I happened upon Cicero's book called The Well-Spent Life, where he argues the things we should think about before we check out of the hotel of life. And he argues what is enough, how to work with friends, how to create values to family that are lasting. 
And at that point, I created a foundation because I realized I had to do something along the lines of what this ancient man was saying. So I'm going to try and sum up three things that I think I learned from your magazine, because it's about a different kind of capitalism. I think your kind of capitalism remains a vital part of both the present, because it's a profitable way of thinking, but also the future of corporations. So while there may be a sea of failures for companies that don't see it your way, I think that your type of capitalism provides firms a license to operate in society and in the new generation and ensures that they maintain a profitable ability into the future. So that's the first premise. The second premise is the type of coverage I see overall in your books and in your magazine. I don't think it falls prey, Josh, to the vague notions of corporate responsibility. It's not just buzzwords. You're writing about people and CEOs and leaders who create social aims and who create talent pools around those social trends that are going to last longer than market trends, right? So for example, in the BP case, they have us think that change is massive, but every week we have to do five different things. We have to think about digitization. We have to think about the agility of the engineers and the technologists. We have to think about the commercial applications of what we're doing, but we also have to think about sustainability and remaining human. So I would say the second principle is that, you know, when you look at some of the firms that are, you mentioned Patagonia in this talk so far, you mentioned MasterCard in that class of companies, you also see Unilever or in Spain, the utility Iberdroller, or in America, the shipper of efficient food train, they sort of see the full impact of the type of capitalism they do. And they measure their success, not just in terms of dollars and cents, but also social aims. I think the third thing I hear is that in addition to the buzzwords of corporate purpose and corporate social responsibility, shows again, like Ben Franklin, that the purpose of making money can be integrated with these social trends and social history. And that in doing it right and doing it good, you actually expand your margins and you find compounding value. You're not just putting money in your own pocket, you're supplying teams of people and a community some benefit. Is that a good way of summing up what your mission has been to date and in the future? And how would you kind of tell the next generation what you think they need to learn about this new form of competition and capitalism, Josh? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a great recap. I think that, you know, to your first point, stakeholder capitalism is the future. I think shareholders, we can't forget, are one of those stakeholders as our communities we operate in, our customers, our employees. And I think long-term, the successful companies will think about how do they deliver value to all of those constituents rather than just their shareholders. So they will create the more successful long-term companies especially generationally, like we said, as Gen X and, and millennials care more and more about mission and purpose. I think to your second point, yes, this idea of greenwashing or now what we can call wokewashing and that you know ESG goals are typically held within PR groups within companies. They just talk about what they're doing versus being held accountable. I think we'll continue to see that paradigm shift towards accountability, transparency of companies doing the right. And yeah, I think that leaders, you know, I'm impressed every day when I see next generation leaders, entrepreneurs, educational institutions focus more on this idea of social entrepreneurship, that they're really embedding some of these core values into the next generation leaders. And I think they will be the successful ones, both financially, as well as leading some of the next greatest companies.
Well, I want to end and turn Josh is the CEO of this media company and worth. I feel like he's helped prepare me for the work that I do. And he didn't know that because I just read the magazine, but I really feel that it was preparatory and helpful to me, Josh. So I'm honored to have met you. And so as you think about the future and education and all these you know, big questions that you're addressing in your work and in your publications and conferences, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I think you know, that profits and purpose are not a trade-off, that the old adage of doing well and doing good is possible. So no matter what they're chasing in life and how they define success, that it probably only shouldn't be defined based on wealth accumulation rather than the broader impact that they're able to have on the world and the legacy they leave, right? So I think that no one any longer wants to purely be recognized once they pass on by the amount of money they made, rather the positive impact they had on their world. And I think that young people and next generation leaders could use that sort of as a guiding principle, you know, in their careers. Well, thank you, Josh Campbell, for combining profits with purpose, your commitment to business, people, and the planet, and that principle of making change so that business benefits the planet as a whole, and working for technology that serves the purpose of people and not technologists. Thank you for adding your voice to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Great. Thanks, Mia. Thanks, Bruce. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.